from Kurtco Media. This episode of Travel It Matters is brought to you by Stone Street Estate Vineyards. Coming up on the show. It's probably single-handedly the most complex wine region on planet Earth. And that's what Dustin's trying to represent on his wine wall. He's trying to represent the diversity, the bounty of Sonoma County. That's winemaker Chris Jackson. I'm Bruce Wallen, and this is Travel That Matters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Travel That Matters Master Chef Series, where we are talking to some of the world's top chefs about their favorite places to travel. At least that's what we're doing in most of these Master Chef episodes. In this episode, I am excited to be mixing things up a bit with a very special guest, the one and only Chris Jackson. For those of you who don't know Chris, he is part of the legendary Jackson family of Northern California. Chris's parents, Jess Jackson and Barbara Banke, they founded Kendall Jackson Wines way back in the early 1980s. And their company now, Jackson Family Wines, they have dozens of wineries all around the world, including brands like Cardinal, Verite, LaCoya, Brewer Clifton, all these amazing, amazing brands. And the company, Jackson Family Wines, is is still very much a family business with Barbara, Chris, and Chris's sisters all involved in every aspect of running that business. One area that Chris is particularly attached to, and particularly fond of is a winery called Stone Street Estate Vineyards in Healdsburg in Sonoma County. You might have heard me talking about Healdsburg and how much I love it in past episodes, but we're going to hear from Chris now, and he is a much better source. For one, he grew up there, so and he's also kind of the expert on the subject now. It also doesn't hurt that he has this like amazingly deep and authoritative voice and just like everything he says just sounds all the more interesting, I think, in that voice. And we're going to hear in that voice about why Healdsburg is such a fascinating food destination today and such a unique spot for growing great wine. Everything from Pinot Noir to Cabernet Sauvignon. We'll also follow along as Chris takes us to the McLaren Vale in Australia, Chianti in Italy and other wine regions around the world. Speaking of following... Be sure to click that button and follow Travel That Matters so you don't miss any of our upcoming MasterChef episodes. But for now, kick back, pour yourself a great glass of wine, and enjoy my interview with the wine expert and world traveler, Chris Jackson. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Travel That Matters today. Great to have you. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be on. So Chris, you are from Healdsburg in Sonoma, California. One of my personal favorite destinations, I think a lot of people maybe don't know so much about Healdsburg in this part of the world in terms of wine country destination or just in as a as a place to go. Tell us a little bit. Okay, we've you know flown into San Francisco or Oakland. We've we've driven up you know up the 101, and you pull up to this town square. Can you just describe to me what what am I seeing and and what's going on? So say you landed in San Francisco and you are going to drive up into Sonoma County. You're not going to end up in Napa, which is a little bit to the east. You're going to go right down the throat of Highway 101. 
And as you're going through Marin and as you're entering into Sonoma County, you'll notice that things get less developed, a little bit more rural. And it's gentle. It's gradual. There's a gradual transition away from the city centers of the Bay Area. And eventually, you get to a point where you're going over a ridgeline, and below you, you see agriculture. You see barley fields in the distance, and then you start to see grapevines, and you start to see olives. And you arrive in Healdsburg, and it's this beautiful town nestled on the banks of the Russian River in between these two mountain ranges. To the west, those mountain ranges are covered and blanketed by these old-growth redwoods, and to the east... They're blanketed by scrub oak and by all this gnarly, brambly-looking forestland. And it's this oasis. It's this agricultural paradise that exists right in the heart, right in the center of the vale, the valley between those two mountain ranges. And in this town, there's history. There's beautiful buildings that are a Victorian theme. There's modern infrastructure. And in the heart of it is this town square, this community hub that is surrounded by restaurants that look down on it and these beautiful trees, oak trees and pine trees that exist right within the town square. And I think the vibe will be a gentle buzz, a hum. You know, there's, there's energy there, but it's not the cacophonic energy that you expect from a big city. It's this quiet, comfortable farming town that just happens to have some luxury, happens to have world-class culinary destinations too. I love that word happens too, because that's one of the things that I love about that area is that it seems, it doesn't feel manufactured at all, right? It just seems like it kind of all came together and over the centuries or whatever it is as this perfect little town square that was never planned, but just kind of happened. And and I think that's part of the appeal of Healdsburg. It is such an organic location. We, I've seen a lot of towns where, you know, the, the architect or, or the company that was financing the development of the town tried to, tried to create some type of charm or some type of epicenter or hub, if you will. And uh, Healdsburg is just so well-constructed. And it's not well-constructed as in everything's architecturally seamless. It's well-constructed as in everything organically emanates from a center. Healdsburg is like great wine. Yeah, great wine isn't perfect. I know we, we reduce everything down to like a 100-point grading system. And if you get 100 points, it's supposed to be perfect. But I always think that nothing is perfect and that a little bit of imperfection means character. And so that's one of the things you notice about Healdsburg and you notice about a lot of great Sonoma-Bordeaux blends, there's a sense of imperfection, of edginess, of tension there. It's that patchwork, imperfect architectural vibe that somehow makes Healdsburg so damn charming. So it sounds like it would have been a, a fantastic place to, to grow up and, and be a kid. Can you like just describe for us a scene from your childhood that just kind of captures why that was such a cool experience? We used to have three restaurants in Healdsburg. We had Bear Republic, which is the uh, beer pub. We had Single Tree Diner, which was this uh, classic kind of American breakfast diner. And then we had the Western Boot, which was this uh, kind of old Western film, Cowboys and Indians themed uh, did they, steakhouse. Did they had like glasses shaped like boots? It was, what yeah, was it, all that places? type of stuff. That. 
<laughs> super, super cheesy, right? Yeah. And um, Healdsburg, it was just so rustic. I mean, I used to run around the vineyards. My sisters and I used to get tadpoles and put them in the jar. We used to bring like frogs or or garter snakes or whatever we could find back and and put them in our drawer and our, our, our mother would find them. And so it wasn't that developed of a luxury experience, but all the ingredients were there for a world-class luxury experience because there was something really beautiful and profound about the surrounding landscape and topography and the agriculture. And uh, I think everything's organically evolved from that point, uh, that it's one of the most naturally beautiful places on planet Earth. So growing up was a little bit more rustic, but now we've got great restaurants like Single Thread and like the Matheson and uh, Cyrus is really close by too. And you've got this unbelievable culinary scene, which is bringing more and more people in. You've also got some good things to pair it with uh, locally. And in fact, the Matheson's the one where they have that whole wine wall when you walk in, right? And there's, can you just describe that that to us? Is that the, am I, I'm right, right? That's the Matheson? Yeah, that's the Matheson. Uh, that was Dustin's idea because he's crazy like that. <laughs> and uh, he has 100 wines, 90 of which are local and 10 of which are international. And so you can find Madeira there and you can find Sautern, typically as Chateau Ycamon. Uh, you know, some of the great iconic sauternes from Bordeaux. But then you'll find all these crazy varieties right from Sonoma County. And you'll find Riesling, you'll find Chenin, you'll find Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Bordeaux, varieties, Zinfandel. It's all there. And a lot of people internationally in the wine industry think like, how could you grow all of that at a high level in the same environment? You know, because Burgundy's predominantly Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, right? And uh, Napa Valley is is predominantly Cabernet, typically, unless you go to Carneros or you go to other areas which are a little bit cooler. And the reason you could grow all those great varieties that uh, Dustin can, can represent on his wine wall is because we've got more soil diversity in Sonoma County than the entire country of France. And we've got everything from vineyards that are three miles away from the Pacific Ocean to 25 miles away from the Pacific Ocean. And we've got all different types of aspects for the sunshine state. So you could be northern in exposition and you're still going to get ripe. And we've got altitudes that range from 100 feet above sea level to 3,000 feet above sea level in terms of what we farm. So it's probably single-handedly the most complex wine region on planet Earth. And that's what Dustin's trying to represent on his wine wall. He's trying to represent the diversity, the bounty of Sonoma County. So... Obviously, this wine wall at Matheson's is a great way to sample a number of wines from the Sonoma region. What about like, you know, if we want a classic wine tasting experience and, and going out and exploring some of the, you know, some of these places that have all these different varietals, like how do you do that? How do you get, capture that variety in a, you know, wine tasting trip to to Sonoma? If you want like the two uber luxurious expressions of Sonoma County winemaking, let's say critically acclaimed, international notoriety, that type of thing, then I think you need to go into the heart of the Russian River and you need to see an iconic uh, winery like William Selliam or Rocchioli or Copan that specializes in locally made Pinot Noir. And then spending time with us up in Pocket Peak and Alexander Valley and Cab Country at Stone Street Estate and seeing that mountain. And the thing is, they sound like they'd be a world apart, but both locations are 10 minutes outside of downtown Healdsburg. Mm -hmm. 
So that's a great thing about Healdsburg. You can go one way and see world-class Pinot Noir, and you could go the other way and see world-class Cabernet Sauvignon. I love Santa Elena and Napa, and there are other great, great wine towns in America, but I think Healdsburg, for that simple fact and for the unbelievable culinary scene and the unbelievable architecture, is the best wine town to visit in America. You're not going to get an argument from me on that one. Talk to us a little bit about that mountaintop, because I, I have done that, as you know, and it's, it's I, I'd never done anything like that before in terms of a, a tasting experience and, and getting to go up and, and, you know, you're in this incredible terrain and you're tasting the wines from the specific vineyard plots that you're, that you're visiting. When did you guys start doing that? And, and just talk to us a little bit about the wines that you're tasting along the way and what you're doing. So we, uh, we acquired our home estate as a family back in 1994. Stone Street Estate had been home to Peter Michaels' efforts for Chardonnay in Sonoma and uh, home to some of Marcuson's efforts in terms of single vineyard Chardonnays. And so we had a good sense of the, of the viticultural capability of the estate. But we had no idea how difficult and complex it was going to be. It had every single aspect from northeast to southwest over 20 different soil types, uh, 2,000 feet of elevation gain, all of that in a single estate. How, how big are we talking the estate? How, how many acres is it? So the total estate is about uh, 5,400 acres, and we've got about 700 acres under vine. And it's so complex that in terms of microclimates or microcrews, we've identified over 270 distinct microclimates for grape growing. And so you could pick up a rock standing in one vineyard block and throw it, and you're going to end up on a different soil type, on a different aspect with a different variety. That estate, Stone Street Estate, is, in my opinion, the most complex wine estate on planet Earth. And I'm not saying normatively better than, worse than. You know, some wine regions have a single soil type and make spectacular wine. But all those differences in elevation and soil type and oceanic influence and aspect and clonal material and variety, that makes Stone Street so complex. And you could really see that complexity in the wine that we make. So a lot of people talk Napa and Sonoma when you talk about the most geographically significant places for, for grape growing. But for me, for premium Bordeaux varieties, I think it's a Mayakama mountain range. Well, again, exploring, exploring that mountaintop, those 5,400 acres in a wine, you know, we're on Jeeps or whatever we're in, like, you know, going up, you start up at the very top, up at Christopher's Vineyard, which I, I'm guessing is named after you, probably. Yeah, you have these incredible Cabernet Sauvignons while you're right there at the vineyard, you know, looking down on the valley from, you know, one of the highest points probably in, in Sonoma. I mean, it's, it's an adventure. It was like an adventure and an introduction into this incredible wine growing region. For, for our listeners, like how, how do you go about setting that up and, and what's that experience like? We'll call Stone Street Estate and uh, we're happy to bring people up to the mountain. Now, I will warn people that this is kind of like a uh, safari experience of wine. That's, yeah, it was like a wine safari, um, yeah. If you want to go see a, uh, a beautiful building and sit down and relax and have a glass of Savio Block, that's cool too. But if you're curious, like really, really curious, what does the vineyard look like for this wine that I'm enjoying? 
and you want to get your hands on some dirt, you want to lick some rocks, you know, <laughs> smell some air, see some wildlife. Uh, that's what we do on the mountain. And you'll end up driving up to about half a mile above sea level, and you'll be above the fog layer. And so if you join us in the morning, you'll see the fog layer gradually burn off and recede. If uh, you're up with us in the afternoon, you're going to get this unbelievable view of the rolling topography, and you'll see the different soil types. You'll see the loam. You'll see the sedimentary soil and the clays. You'll see the volcanic soil, and you'll see the viticultural practices. And that sense of the agriculture, that sense of the place, I think will perfectly explain what you're drinking because that's what we make. We make wines that are representational of our home. And so that salinity, that, that sense of, of coastal influence that you get in Upper Barn Chardonnay, you're going to smell that air. You're going to smell the bay laurel tree. You're going to lick that rock. You will, yeah. We actually, we, we do. Um, I wouldn't recommend eating soil generally, uh, <laughs> but if, if you really want to get a sense of a, of a place, oftentimes I end up smelling or tasting the soil before we plant it. So, But I do recommend seeing these places. And there is luxury in the sense that you know, you could go to a great tasting room and you could sit outside and you could relax and take some time off your busy day. But if uh, you find yourself getting addicted to wine, passionate about wine, at some point you do need to take the pilgrimage to some of the great grape growing sites. And uh, for me, Pocket Peak is one of those sites. Can you just tell us a little bit about some of those, some of those wines that you taste on that experience? So we uh, serve uh, Blanc de Blanc sparkling wine with uh, caviar at a place we call the Overlook. And uh, that place feels somewhat weirdly like the Vista in The Lion King. <laughs> I mean, you know, everything the light touches, that type of vibe, right? And uh, we also serve Upper Barn Chardonnay in Upper Barn, which is one of the Grand Cru Chardonnay sites in California. And uh, we'll taste you on some Mountain Cabernet Sauvignon too. I think the thing to remember about uh, Sonoma County is that the aromatic quality of the wine that you drink is very much informed by the aromatic character of the land. You could smell the grasses, you could smell the chamomile, the sagebrush, the bay laurel. It's a very aromatically expressive place. And there's an old adage that my dad was a believer in. He said, you want to find a great vineyard, find a great view? Pocket Peak has that in spades. Definitely, definitely worth seeing, that's for sure. You said your family, your, they acquired this estate, the Stone Street Estate, the, in 1994. But your family's roots in Sonoma go back farther than that, correct? And it, you, I mean, clearly you guys have done a huge amount in both Napa and Sonoma, but can you just tell us a little bit about the family business, how it got going in this particular area? Oh, it was a complete catastrophe. <laughs> You've probably heard like some marketing version, if, uh, if you know Jackson Family Wines or Kendall Jackson, at some point as a wine consumer, but the reality is it was Murphy's Law. Just mistake after mistake after mistake. And I'll give you a little background into that. So uh, my dad was a uh, zealous uh, litigator for uh, property rights in California, and he did pretty well. I mean, he won in front of the Supreme Court, in front of the Ninth Circuit. He was well regarded, but he also did a lot of pro bono work. And so 
uh, when he was retiring out of the uh, legal profession, he had some cash, but he also had an equal amount of debt. And uh, he wanted to get back into agriculture because he had raised cattle and corn with his grandmother in Texas. And he'd actually worked in Sonoma County. He'd worked in the, uh, the hop fields of Sonoma because it was actually pretty famous for hops back in the day, like the 1950s and before. And the thing he'd fallen in love with uh, was, was Chardonnay and Burgundy. So he had this idea, like, I'm going to make a world-class Chardonnay. I'm going to bring it to California. And he didn't pick Sonoma County to start, but he picked Lake County, our neighbor county to the north. And he bought a, a pear and walnut orchard because he's he'd he'd heard that uh, pears and walnuts were uh, indicative of good soil for a vinifera vine. So he planted that and developed that to Chardonnay. And by the time he got into commercial production, the great market just collapsed. And so he was stuck in a situation where he didn't have a, a saleable product, agricultural product. So he made the next decision, okay, if I can't sell it as grapes, I'm going to vinify it myself, and I'm going to sell it as wine. And that went correct for 80%. And then for 20% of the, uh, of the vintage, it's stuck in fermentation which means that uh, the yeast were no longer converting the sugar into alcohol. So it was like halfway wine, halfway sweet grape juice, halfway wine. So he was thinking to himself, like, what do I do? Do I, do I have one sweet wine, a dessert wine, quote unquote, and, you know, a couple dry wines? Do I blend it all together? Do I cry uncle and give up? Which he wasn't hardwired to do. He made the, uh, he made the decision to blend it all together. Now, Knowing the American palate back in the early 1980s when, you know, it was all about hamburgers and malted chocolate milkshakes, how do you think the American palate reacted to a Chardonnay with a bit of a sweetness on it? They liked it. I oh, would not, guess. Not no. only did they like it, they <laughs> loved it. it. It won a double platinum in the California State Fair. It was featured in the Reagan White House as Nancy Reagan's favorite wine. And Kendall Jackson took off like a rocket ship. And it's been the top Chardonnay in America for 30 years straight. And it's not some big uh, corporate uh, uh, spirits conglomerate that's creating it. It's, it's us. It's a family. Okay, let's talk about that because with that kind of, you know, there's Kendall Jackson, but it's much, much more than that today. Look, you got La Coya, Cardinal, Verite, many others. With Stone Street, with any of these, how does that kind of family mentality play into I mean, A, how you approach the wine business, but then also the wines themselves. Like, is there a difference there because of that? Oh, a family mentality is a sine qua non uh, behind a brand like Stone Street. You cannot farm and grow grapes and vinify the way we do at Stone Street unless you have a long-term perspective. And when you're a family person, uh, a father like me, for example, you're thinking about the future generations and you're thinking about where you want the world to be. And... What I love about our art form, what I love about Stone Street is every decision we make is a quarter century out in terms of impact. Right. When you pick a, a particular block and you farm it a particular way, you're making a decision for 25 years in the future because it's going to take 15 years for the grapes to be at the level you want to vinify. And then we're making the intentional decision to age the wine five to 10 years too. And so... Coming from a uh, publicly listed corporate background where you're focused on quarterly products, you would never want to farm a mountain where you're getting half the grapes and then put that into a product that's going to take you 10 years to come to market. The reason we can do that, the reason we can get away with that is because 
we have a family mindset. And by family mindset, I mean we love our family, we love our community, and uh, we think about things in decades, if not centuries. You guys age the wines much more than, than is typical before you even bottle. Is that, can you, is that related to that kind of multi-generational long-term view? And, and, and why do you do that? For us to be able to deliver the greatest representation of our art form, of our work, we need to reflect Pocket Peak. And it's the uh, opinion of uh, Christina, our winemaker, and myself that Pocket Peak is austere and, and edgy in the beginning. And then gradually over time, it loosens and softens and you see an emergence of dark fruit and red fruit to marry the herbs and olive tapenade and savory, spicy characteristics that you get from that terrain. And so I oftentimes think of Stone Street Cabernet as being similar to a great single malt or scotch. And scotch, the peatiness interplays with the natural sweetness of the barley to create a very complex experience over time. For us, it's the uh, harmonization of all the rugged terrain and microclimates and blends of Pocket Peak and that marriage between savory and sweet, between herbs, crushed herbs, and fruit, and the softening of the tannin that makes the wine show beautifully with a bit of age on it. And so what are we talking here? How, how, how long do you age before, you know, how many years behind are you, I guess, <laughs> that's probably not the right way to say it, but like, you know, someone else is releasing their 2020s, you're releasing your... So we're currently releasing uh, wine that is either uh, five years of age minimum or 10. And that's an intentional decision. Uh, it's a creative decision because I got sick and tired of walking into a restaurant and talking to the sommelier and saying, this wine's going to be beautiful in three years. <laughs> you know, I wanted to put something on the table as a proud Jackson and say, isn't this great now? Right. And uh, the response of the sommelier community has been tremendously positive because uh, restaurateurs and psalms are so used to uh, selling wine, which is immature or young on their list. And to have something of, of true provenance where they know that the wine's been stored correctly and the creative decision has been made to age it, to hold it back to the right point, has led to a tremendously positive view of, of Stone Street. And it's not a novel concept in wine, but it's a rare concept in the United States of America. You know, if you go to Vega Sicilia in Spain or Chateau Gillet in Bordeaux, they've been embodying those principles for a while. And they're right there, too. Their wine needs time, too. But for me, Pocket Peak, the beauty of it is oftentimes the longevity of it. Let's talk a little bit about, I, I think we've given people many, many great reasons to go to Healdsburg for sure, and, and Sonoma in general as a wine country destination. I'm guessing you have a lot of experience with other wine country destinations around the world through your work, through your you know travels, your vacations. What are some of the other wine country destinations that are just amazing experience for, for travelers, whether, you know, whether or not you guys have projects in those areas or not, but are there, are there other places that you love to go? I love uh, McLaren Vale, Australia, because it's just crazy cool. I mean, coming from uh, 
Sonoma County and Healdsburg, we've got a ton of wildlife, everything from eagle to bear to cougar, coyote, that type of thing. And then you get dropped down in the land down under, right outside of Adelaide, and you're looking at all these bizarre creatures like kangaroo and koala, and the birds just sound different. I mean, they sound like what I'd imagine some prehistoric animal would sound like. <laughs> and you're drinking bushvine grenache that's been farmed for 80 to 100 years, and you're drinking... Uh, Shiraz and Cabernet blends, you know, these things that to an American audience would seem very esoteric and different. And then 10 minutes later or 15 minutes later, you hop in the car and you end up at Port Wollonga and you're on a golden sand beach eating fresh calamari out of the ocean in a place that is uh, pretty much as uh, picturesque as uh, Malibu would be. And so that's a, that's a great spot to visit. We just had Curtis Stone on the on the show, the chef, the Australian chef and that was one of the places that he raved about as well. So I think uh, that's two. I think that's a, that's all the information I need to know. To, I need to get to McLaren Vale. Okay, so Healdsburg, McLaren Vale. What else? What, where else are we going for, for the ultimate wine country vacation? I've got a special place in my heart for uh, Chianti Classico. Just going by a house that has been standing for 1,200 years that God knows how many families have lived in, seeing a building that the Pope built back in the 1300s, seeing olives that are hundreds of years old, the trees, and seeing black truffles and, and that type of vibe. It's really, really cool to have that type of history. And it almost reminds me of Sonoma County topographically, these rolling golden hills, olives, vines, that type of thing. But the architecture is a thousand years old. And it doesn't hurt that the uh, Italian food's so darn good too. Yeah, I, 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 I can't remember what it, whether it was Antonori or Maceto or something, but I remember reading years ago about how it, it had been in the same family since the 1500s or something ridiculously like that. And it's so hard to fathom as an American that a, a single business could be in the same family for centuries and centuries and centuries. But maybe we'll have that with the, with the Jackson family, too. If we're, if we're doing this, you know, in a few hundred years here, we can look back and, and talk about that. What about here in the U.S.? Is there any, you know, aside from Sonoma, of course, Napa. We don't have to talk about Napa. We, we, we all know and love Napa. But is there anywhere else in, in the U.S. that you, you love as a, as a wine country, kind of an up-and-coming destination? Oh, Willamette Valley. Phenomenal Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs. Um, I love Dundee. I love Viola Amity. There's some beautiful, beautiful wines there. And it almost reminds me of what Sonoma County felt like 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm when it was rustic. But if you're a Francophile and you like kind of old school, earthy, structurally dense expressions, Pinot, Eola Amity is the type of place you want to go. And what, do you guys have any projects up there in the Willamette? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I mean, we, uh, so, so before you think I'm being self-serving here, just said our, uh, we tend to as a family, if we really love a place and love visiting it and love the wines there, we tend to want to invest there. Yeah. Yeah. Why it's, not? Uh, it's a bit of an obsession, if you will. So, uh, <laughs> we're actually making wine in uh, three different states right now, all on the West coast, uh, California, Oregon, and Washington. And we're vinifying wine in eight different countries. And you're about to add one more. Is that correct? Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. Well, if you ever want a uh, indication that climate change is a very real thing, just look at the emergence of the English sparkling wine category. Because 150 years ago, the notion that you could get any type of vinifera grape ripe in England was a uh, was a bit of a joke. 
In fact, it was it was so bad that uh, Henry the Thirteenth used to proudly exclaim about his English wine, and he used to import French wine, and he'd blend about five percent English wine into it in order to have a palatable product. <laughs> so, we just invested in England. Uh, we we love it there too. It's a great culture, but uh, uh, there's this area called the Crouch Valley, which is just warm enough to make a still Chardonnay, and we think we could do something vibey and acid driven and similar to Shipley. Okay, I like to ask this of, of many of my guests, but have you had a meal, and in this case, I want to hear about the wine as well, of course, but have you had a meal in the last, I don't know, year or so that just kind of like stands out in your mind as this just life-changing experience? We just did a uh, wine dinner at Verite. We had our culinary team in, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the appetizers was uh, just chorizo, that was locally made with a piece of uh, fresh Dry Creek peach from Sonoma. And uh, that combination of the fat and the salt and the spiciness of the sausage and that sweet stone fruit that was just perfectly ripe with the right amount of acid and the right amount of uh, sugar was the last bite of food I've had that just blew me away. Something simple being that darn good. And then ironically, you know, the wine that we had right after that was uh, the inaugural vintage of Verite, which is now 25 years old, uh, Le Joie. And seeing our work from Sonoma County, so beautifully representational of its home, a quarter century and its timetable, was a, uh, was a validation of our belief in Sonoma County. So just come visit us. I mean, come, come drink our wine, come taste it. I think once you get a perfectly aged sip of Stone Street Cabernet in your mouth, you know, something with uh, 10 years of age on it, maybe it could be 2013 Rockfall, for example. I think that's a bit of a life-changing experience when it comes to Cabernet Sauvignon in California. Well, yeah, I mean, you talked about the simplicity of the dish and then the, you know, the complexity of a wine that's 25 years old and showing, you know, everything that, that you've put into that. I love that kind of the beauty of... Sonoma as a destination is that wonderful combination of those two things. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fantastic speaking with you and and just love learning more about this region and wine. Thank you for having me on. And now for the Wallen Wrap-Up. I think I could listen to Chris Jackson talk about these wines and wine regions all day here. That guy's just like, I, he he's so compelling in his storytelling. I love I love hearing from him and as I've said many times, I also love Healdsburg. One thing we did not talk about with Chris is the hotels out there, and there are some amazing ones now, especially now. It's it's really been changing. There is a lot more luxury coming to Healdsburg. Most recently, Montage opened up Montage Healdsburg, an amazing resort right outside of town, right there, really an incredible place to stay. There's also the beautiful Farmhouse Inn, which has great food. It's just outside of town as well, down the road. Really nice, traditional, but still very luxurious Sonoma County Wine Country Lodge. And the Jackson family actually just purchased something called the Vintners Resort in Sonoma County. So that's another place to keep an eye on. So there's lots of great places to stay, lots of great places to eat. It is time we all got ourselves up to Healdsburg. We'd like to thank Chris Jackson for joining us today on Travel That Matters. 
For more information on the wineries that we talked about, please check out our show notes or visit kurtco.com backslash travel that matters. Travel That Matters is produced and edited for Kurtco Media by A.J. Mosley. Marketing by Katrin Skipertis and music by Joey Salvia. I'm Bruce Wallen, and we'll see you down the road.